Emotions Per Minute is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. Recorded live at WBAI 99.5 in Brooklyn every Wednesday at 9 p.m. RPM's about doing the work. The work to build a democratic socialist future. Each week, hear the latest news, analysis, and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in New York City. Join the movement at socialists.nyc. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute live on WBAI. We are a socialist radio show and podcast from members of New York City Democratic Socialists of America. The Democratic Socialists of America is the largest socialist organization in the United States, with 90,000 members nationwide, and New York City DSA is its biggest chapter. We are run by our 7,000-plus members and organizers who are working together to build democratic socialism in all five boroughs. My name is Desiree Joy Frias. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm on the organizing committee for the Bronx Upper Manhattan branch. With a surge in anti-AAPI violence making the news and Derek Chauvin murder trial ripping open fresh wounds, it's time to keep up the pressure and defund the NYPD. On tonight's show, we're joined live by Cheryl Rivera, an organizer with NYC DSA's Defund NYPD and Abolition Action Campaigns. We'll discuss common myths and misconceptions about defunding the police and organizing for community safety in a non-carceral framework. We will be taking your calls throughout the show starting just before 930, so please get your questions ready. We'll also hear from Lizzie of Queens DSA and our Immigrant Justice Working Group and Ives from the Grassroots Collective Red Canary Song on violence against Asian American and Pacific Islander communities and why increased policing is not the answer. But first, the headlines with Simone Norman. News, Governor Cuomo allegedly secured COVID-19 tests for his family in the early days of the pandemic, when COVID-19 tests were not widely available, special treatment that appears to violate state law. Alyssa McGrath, an aide to Governor Andrew Cuomo, has accused the governor of sexual harassment and corroborated the accusation of another Cuomo employee. The attorney general's investigation into Andrew Cuomo is shedding light on the governor's practice of avoiding paper trails. Some high school students returned to in-person classes this week, and Mayor Bill de Blasio announced that the city will open another opportunity for parents to enroll students in in in-person classes. A move prompted by the CDC's revised guidelines now saying students can be three rather than six feet apart in classrooms. Some students have critiqued the return to brick-and-mortar schools as simply a commute to log on to Zoom from the classroom, rather than an experience that deploys classroom-specific teaching techniques or allows for any socializing. The New York State Legislature passed a law repealing COVID-19 legal liability protections granted to nursing homes and hospitals. The New York City Council voted to end qualified immunity for the city's police officers, making it easier to take them to court for abuse of power. All of the city's 80,000 municipal office workers will stop working remotely starting May 3rd. After two years of failed negotiations, the governor and legislature have reached a deal to legalize recreational cannabis in New York State. New York Senator Chuck Schumer is calling on President Joe Biden to name Damian Williams as the next U.S. attorney in Manhattan. Williams would be the first black prosecutor to lead that office. 
Restrictions in New York's rent relief program have allowed the state to spend only $7 million of the $60 million allocated to New Yorkers who have fallen behind on rent during the pandemic. The New York State Board of Elections is set to miss an April 12th deadline to implement a statewide online voter registration that would have allowed NYC voters to take advantage of the system before the June primaries. And in election news, recent polling shows 50% of likely voters in the Democratic mayoral primary are undecided, with just three months left until the election. Two special city council elections in the Bronx are awaiting winners after no candidate received an outright majority because the state cannot tabulate voters' ranked choices until April 7th, after all absentee ballots are received. Tenant lawyer Oswald Felice currently leads to replace Richie Torres in the District 15. And real estate-backed candidate Eric Dinowitz holds an advantage to replace Andrew Cohen in District 11. Turnout in both races was extremely low. And finally, Republican Congressional Representative Tom Reed of New York 23, who had previously discussed running for governor in 2022, announced that he will run for neither governor nor re-election after a lobbyist accused him of sexual harassment. Our headlines are brought to you by The Thorn, an incredible weekly newsletter by NYC DSA Electoral Working Group covering local politics and radical activism. Subscribe at thethorn.nyc. Cheryl, thanks for coming back on the show. I'm really excited to have you come and speak about the Defund NYPD campaign. You've been on the past to discuss your work as an abolitionist organizer um, and you're also involved with New York City DSA's Mutual Aid Fund. So tell me a little bit about what you're doing now and an update on that Mutual Aid Fund. Yeah, thanks for having me, Desiree. Um, so I've been working in the last year on the Defund NYPD campaign uh, for New York City DSA, um, which is housed in the Racial Justice Working Group. So a lot of my time has been spent in building out this campaign, which is truly massive. Uh, we were very ambitious. We wanted to approach this problem from um, all angles. Uh, we do action, coalition building, political education, tabling, canvassing. Um, we've been producing a lot of great research uh, to help create our sort of like policy uh, brief uh, that will soon be released. Look out for that drop. Uh, so there's been a lot of work happening <laughs> with the Defund NYPD campaign. Uh, I've also been spending this past year working on, as you said, the, the New York City DSA's Mutual Aid Fund. Uh, really proud of that. We raised over $100,000 and have distributed all of that money. Um, that money is going directly to groups who are uh, delivering groceries and other necessities to families uh, in New York. Um, so, yeah, this money's really, we're, we're feeding people. Um, and the pandemic's not over yet. So we're still, still collecting money, still distributing, uh, the funds so that people can, can get what they need. So if you have, uh, any spare change to donate, if you had a stimulus check and, and your needs are taken care of and you can spare anything, I really encourage you to donate at bit.ly, uh, slash COVID-19 aid. So that's bit.ly COVID-19 aid. Yeah, thank you so much for your work. And I think that, uh, you know, maybe it's just me, but the mutual aid factor and abolition really tie really close together, in my opinion, uh, thinking about how we as a community can take care of each other. I'm thinking about the fridge movement, 
Um, how do you see that mutual aid work as part of your abolition work? I think it's absolutely essential. Uh, I think you're right when you say these things do go together, uh, which is that abolitionists aren't just about abolishing the, the actual physical site of prisons, although we are about that, and abolishing the police force, although we are about that, but also creating a new world. And so to create this new world, we really have to invest in each other. We have to invest in taking care of each other. So that's where mutual aid comes in. Mutual aid is a way of surviving together. It's of meeting each other's needs. And I think this work really builds uh, something that we desperately need to, to win uh, and to build a new world, which is we need community. We need to be in real community with each other. So when you do this mutual aid work, you make the conditions possible for us to have abolition. So I, I absolutely see these as being tied together. And give me a little bit of that abolition 101 and uh, how that, what that looks like. Yeah, so what it's looking like is working at the basis to not prop up any more systems of policing or imprisonment. Um, this, these systems are broader than just the prison and just the police. You'll see now that in so many aspects of our society, we have prisons and policing. We have, we have cops in our schools. Uh, cops are mental health responses. Cops are in our subways and our transit. Uh, we are sending people to jail, to prison for all sorts of offenses, uh, for mental health breaks, for, for drugs, um, for being poor, for being homeless. You can be arrested. Uh, so we are seeing all of our society's problems being addressed with cops, with prisons, so with punitive punishment. Um, this is really a, a poverty and social problem management technique. This is what prisons and policing are. Um, but they're not solving these problems. So I think that's really the key here is that abolitionists are saying, let's not bring in um, forms of managing these social problems, prisons and police, that really don't fix the problem, and which really has started to expand through all of our society uh, to hem us all up with this really punitive, terrible, terrible um, system. So we're all caught up in this punitive system. It's very expensive. It compounds harms, and it doesn't solve anything. So abolitionists are, I think, imagining a new world. It's very like, just like I think socialists in general, we're saying we don't like this world that we're living in, right? This is not a world that is taking care of everyone. This is not a world in which things are equitable. This is not a world that I want to live in. So you have to think beyond. You have to imagine beyond. What can the society be like if we don't have prisons and police as our primary response to harm and as our primary response to social problems, such as poverty? And um, I know that the phrase defund NYPD um, has already become like, so like lava, like people, the second people see it, they're concerned. Uh, but actually tell us, what is the defund NYPD campaign? Yeah, I think it's interesting. People get a little, get a little bugged out about defund. They say, oh, what does that mean? We're just going to, just going to slash like cost budget, you're going to pull costs out, and then you're not going to address like all of the things that 
I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about safety. I feel unsafe in my neighborhood. I feel um, I, I don't know how to deal with the problems in, in my neighborhood without being able to call the police. Um, and so defund is not saying, let's just get rid of cops and not do anything else. Uh, I think we have to think about this as a divest to invest model. So divest all of our money, a lot of our money, $11 billion goes into the NYPD every year. Um, divest that money from the NYPD and invest it in our communities, invest it in the real things you need. What is safety really about? What is the real community need here? And that need is probably housing, that need is education, that need is uh, better, more reliable transit infrastructure, that need is getting groceries on my table, right? All of these are needs, having parks, having the trash pickup, and those are the things that we should be spending our money on. So the defund campaign is really about take this money out of institutions that we see are not serving us because they're not solving. They're not solving crime. They're not solving the social problems, right? Those haven't gone away. People are still homeless. So let's actually solve that. Let's divest that money and invest it in solutions that actually work. So this is more expansive than just what do we get rid of? It's also about what do we build? Absolutely. And I'm just going to take a quick break to say you're listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. Today, we're talking about New York City DSA's campaign to defund the NYPD, and we will be taking your calls in just a few minutes. Uh, But first, I want to go through some of the common... um, misconceptions that I hear um, on the internet. Uh, So Cheryl, uh, the first one is cops keep us safe. Is that true or not? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we have to ask who and what is safety? Both of those questions I think are really relevant here. Who are they keeping safe? Uh, Because if you would ask um, many of my friends, yeah, my family, from a very young age, I was I I understood that I was not to talk to cops, I was to stay away from them. They they were very dangerous to my health. Um, so they're not keeping me safe, you know. Uh, and I think a lot of people would feel the same. Um, cops are a source of harassment. So who who are they keeping safe? Uh, and then also, what is safety? When we say, do cops prevent crime? No, obviously not. Um, do cops solve crime. And a lot of people will be like, oh, of course, that's what they do. Uh, but when you look into it, that's not what cops do. Um, there aren't great statistics about this, um, but the FBI, which, you know, the biggest cops there are, does do some of this tracking about how many cases get cleared. And out of violent crimes, it's less than 60% are solved or cleared. So cops don't even solve the most important quote unquote crimes. Um, and then for things, property crimes, it's an 8% clearance rate. So cops really are not doing the jobs that you think they're doing. So even if you believe like cops should be coming down hard on criminals doing things like murdering and raping, rape has an 18%, I think, clearance rate, pretty low. You know, these things are, are not really being solved by cops. So they're not being prevented by cops. They're not being solved by cops. So we have to say, what is the safety that we're attributing to, to cops? What does safety really mean? 
And if you ask people to define what would my safe, great, fantastic life look like? A lot of people would say something about having a place to live that they enjoy um, in a nice looking neighborhood uh, where they can hang out with their neighbors, uh, where they can send their kids to good schools, et cetera. And none of those things have to do with policing. So what is safety really about? Are cops keeping us safe? No, clearly not. Cops are killing many of us and cops are not addressing the things that would really, I think, get at what many people, if they broke it down, mean by safety. All right. So we did one. Uh, cops keep us safe. In many cases, they don't. Uh, three, which is the police prevent crime. Uh, they, they don't really prevent crime or even solve all of it. Um, and number two was uh, we've always had cops. Oh, yeah. We've always had cops. I love this one because uh, it's very ahistorical because we have not always had cops. Cops are pretty recent. Um, cops are a, the organized policing uh, really came about in the early 19th century. So this is really late in the game. And you see most organized policing in the, in the South um, came out a little quicker because it's coming out of the slave patrols. So the history of cops is pretty short and it's linked directly to uh, the slave trade in the U.S. And up North, there was also cop forces first being formalized in the 19th century. And this was happening because they had a lot of immigrant workers who were working in terrible conditions, who were starting to organize themselves to agitate for better conditions. So the wealthy, the capitalist people who owned the means of production needed a way to keep these people in line. So cops are from the very beginning about uh, making sure labor uh, is managed. So the labor of slaves and the labor of these immigrant workers. So this is also 19th century, like super, like early 1800s. This is when cops are really becoming formalized. So this is a very um, new system. This is a system in which we've given an immense amount of power only recently to carry the kind of like weapons um, that are very hugely destructive to have tanks, to have uh, billion dollar budgets. All of this, uh, this form of policing that we're seeing now, this hyper-militarized form of policing is even more recent, starting in like the 1970s. So this is not a it forever was and forever will be institution. This is something that was created out of um, slavery, out of a need to manage uh, labor forces, uh, and which has been given a huge place in our society, but that I think is, is pretty bad for us, for most of us. Yeah, and it makes me think about uh, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Uh, they just turned 18 this month. Uh, so I hope you have a terrible birthday, uh, but it, that's, it's only been 18 years uh, since that organization, um, part of this wonderful, lovely experiment of democracy that we have in this country is that we get to have a say in what the future of our country looks like. Um, and, you know, as a woman of color, there's, there's nothing good. I can't like travel back in time. If I get a time machine, there's nothing good back there for me. Um, and I have to have hope that that what's ahead of us is going to be slightly better, preferably uh, without these oppressive, abusive, dangerous, harmful organizations. 
Uh, absolutely. Also, yes, immigration, they're cops too. <laughs> they're included. When we say defund, um, they also need to be defunded and shut down, abolish, abolish ICE. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and what about, I'm going to do one more before we go to questions. Uh, what about reforming the police? Why can't we just fix them? Yeah, everyone's like, well, maybe if you just do it a little bit different. And what's interesting is that um, prisons themselves were a reform because before they were just like, let's let's kill people or, <laughs> you know, there are different ways of like dealing with punishment. Um, and so that was a reform itself. And then reforming the cops have been, there's, it's a history, if you look at police, of supposed reforms that were going to fix everything for the cops. And we have an example very recently that we can see the folly of like reform um, and why it just doesn't work, which is body cameras. Body cameras were not a thing 20 years ago. Uh, it's pretty recent that body cameras were have, have been um, touted as like the thing that was going to reform the police and make police uh, less violent, hold them accountable. And what have we seen? What have we seen? We, we have now just been able to have sometimes more video of police murders, but that video then doesn't even lead to consequences for the police. And we see many police departments have a, a problem, an issue with their police officers turning off video. Oh no, the video got lost, et cetera, et cetera. So we haven't seen the body cameras as a reform that was supposed to totally change policing. And that hasn't done anything. We've also seen reforms over the years. Tons of money has been poured into policing nationwide uh, to train them, to, to, to give them bias training, uh, to give them uh, training on how to interact with communities. To, there's been reforms for community policing, you know, neighborhood cops, making sure like you get the beat cop in your neighborhood. All of these were reforms that people said were going to change the whole nature of policing. Police you spent a lot of uh, time and effort in some cities recruiting cops who are of color. So you have black cops, you have Latino cops. And this was supposed to change like the nature of cops because, oh, you know, then we won't have so much racism on the force or whatever. Uh, and this, this didn't. So we just see a whole history, a list of reforms that have happened, come, and money has been spent on these reforms. And that money... That's the important part. When you spend so much money trying to reform the cops, all you do is grow this institution. We give you $5 million to implement um, bias training. That is $5 million more to prop up the institution of policing. Uh, and this just has no track record of results. So that's why we're not for reform. There's been many numerous reforms proposed, passed, that have been integrated into the institution. And at its core, it's just a rotten institution. And it's like, okay, well, will I even, you know, live to see the reforms? Because they're not reforming fast enough and they're killing a thousand civilians, the police are uh, across the country every year. Uh, so can I just, you know, hope I roll the dice uh, and that they'll, they'll fix right up <laughs> in time? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's hard to uh, to understand where people who are all for reform are coming from when we have a police force such as in New York uh, that this past summer you you saw the sort of energy they gave the city there the the trying to run people over in the middle of the street beating people 
on, on camera. There was plenty of cameras around, plenty of visibility of this. There's plenty of outrage from, uh, you know, officials, sometimes from the mayor, although let's not go there because <laughs> I have words for de Blasio. Um, you know, all sorts of sorts of uh, things that you might think, oh, that, that would make the NYPD feel ashamed or like, you know, not do some of the more egregious like abuses. And it doesn't, it doesn't, because at this point, the cops have been imbued with so much money, so much power, so much um, institutional sort of protection that they feel somewhat invincible. So the way we must go at them has to be to cut them at the knees, defund, starve this beast, uh, because we, we, we can't try to dangle the carrot, we can't try to reform this. Uh, it's it's out of control, um, and the cops do not respond <laughs> to reform, uh, and they don't respond to uh, little changes. Yeah, um, and I know that our audience has a lot of questions about the defund NYPD campaign, given the feedback we got on our Twitter at NYCDSA, if you want to join the conversation. Uh, but you can also call in right now at 212-209-2877. Again, that number is 212-209-2877 to ask our guest, Cheryl, uh, from the N- Defund NYPD campaign of NYCDSA questions about this campaign and what a world would look like uh, if when we win and defund the NYPD. Um, so do you have any other misconceptions or questions that you get a lot? We have a caller. Great. Hello? Yes. You're live with WBAI. Yeah, I'm calling in because I, I had experience with in court, thank God. And a lot of people are looking at court differently. They don't really know how to utilize the Constitution because in Gonzalez versus um, the town of Castle, um, Castle Rock, it tells you the police are not obligated to protect you. It's by law they're not obligated to protect you. And then a, a, a lot of people don't know Article 1, Section, a Bill of Attainder. They get around the Bill of Attainder because of jurisdiction. People acknowledge them, the police officer because we have separation of powers, people acknowledge them and sue them as a police officer, this is the problem we have. The Constitution is very powerful in court. I have, thank God I have one, but you have to know how to use the republic that we have. There's a lot of laws in there that they can't do what they're doing. But we're attacking it the wrong way. And just like, you know, you were saying that, oh, uh, they, they don't protect you. They're not made to protect you. We're never made to protect you because they're not. They're, they're part of the executive branch. And there's a difference between a constitutional court and the legislation court. And a constitutional court is where you're supposed to be. But they're, they're defaulting everybody into the legislation court where they have all that power to do what they want. Absolutely. Thank you so much for calling. And uh, that case, so that Supreme Court case is Town of Castle Rock, Colorado, 
uh, versus Jessica Gonzalez. Uh, that case held that a police department could not be sued for failure to enforce a restraining order against the respondent's husband. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. That's a Supreme Court case. Um, the cops are not legally required to, to do anything for you. Uh, right, Cheryl? Um, absolutely. I remember uh, reading um, some story of some woman who had uh, been released from um, uh, prison and she didn't she had been in for a while so she didn't have the contact information of her family and when she went to the apartment they didn't where her sister lived they didn't live there anymore and um the woman could not get help from any cops she encountered she went to the police station and they're like we don't do that here (laughs) which is and i don't know if you ever have an issue uh and you've you've asked the cop and if that issue um you're living a very different life than me, <laughs> but, but let's say you did ask a cop for help. Uh, they you're probably not going to get help from this cop. Cops jobs are not to just help the citizens out. They're not here officer friendly. Um, cop jobs are to protect capital at, at the end of the day, they are to enforce a racial hierarchy and protect capital. So they're, they're not there. This is why they're not friendly. People are often like, oh, this jerk cop, this or that. I'm like, every cop is a jerk cop, right? Because cops are just not standing around on the corner of New York City ready to help you figure out um, one of your like issues or, you know, I've lost something. I'm looking for this. Uh, they're not there for that. They're not there. You can call a cop up tomorrow and be like, my bike was stolen. They're like, and what do you want me to do? <laughs> Which really shows you, are they there to solve crime? Technically, that's a crime. They don't care. Um, Thoughts are not clear for us. Yeah. And Cheryl, another one of these uh, common questions or comments, uh, $11 billion is not that much money. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I would say $11 billion is a lot of money. New York City budget is, is large. That's true. But $11 billion, and also, I just want to note, the NYPD's budget last year, it was $6 billion. So they spent $11 billion. That's all of the extras that they pay out over time. Um, remember, the lawsuits that they get filed against them every year, tons of those, uh, that the city has to pay out. So they have a budget of $6 billion, which is horrendous, but they spend $11 billion. So they're just a money sinkhole. But that $11 billion that they spent is more than your expense on the departments of health, homeless services, uh, youth and community development combined so where are we really putting our money when we're saying oh that's not that much money you know new york's a big city well it's way more money than we're spending on a lot of other things that people would consider probably more important to the quality of life department of health we're in a pandemic right now they were having a hard time stocking masks but you know the nypd is still able to to keep hiring uh, new cops everyone else is in a hiring freeze in the city but not the cops so too much, like not enough money, like, oh, that's not that much money. It's really relative, right? It's a lot of money compared to what the rest of what the city is spending on other services. So this shows where the priorities of the city are. And if the city's priorities can't be in the Department of Health having a bitter budget in the NYPD in a pandemic, well, we're really lost as a society, right? 
Absolutely. So uh, we're going to go to a pre-recorded segment uh, with Lizzie and Ives, uh, but I will give that phone number again for later, uh, 212-209-2877. Again, the phone number is 212-209-2877 to ask Cheryl about the Defund NYPD campaign. But first, we're going to go to this pre-recorded segment. These past few weeks have been difficult ones for many Asian American and Pacific Islander people, with a high-profile outbreak of violence in Atlanta and many similar incidents of racist aggression here in NYC. For a socialist perspective on these events and how we can respond to them, let's go to Amy Wilson. New York City. This is Amy Wilson for Revolutions Per Minute. I'm here with Lizzie from Queens DSA and our Immigrant Justice Working Group and Eve from Red Canary Song. Hi, welcome to Revolutions Per Minute. Thanks for being with us tonight. Thank you so much, Amy, for having us. Yeah, thank you for having me. So if you could, um, from your perspective as organizers, tell our audience a little bit about what uh, we've seen in the last few weeks uh, with uh, violence toward members of the Asian American and Pacific Islander community, and why this has become such a, a, an important topic um, in in recent days. Yeah, I think so. There has been really spectacular interpersonal violence on the street. We've um, basically seen somebody um, getting attacked or assaulted. I mean just nationally, not just in New York City, but nationally, almost every day so far. And um, a lot of the time, the victims are elderly, they are women. Um, and, you know, it's created such an outroar among us because I think there is a lot of fear for Asian folks just realizing that this could happen to any of them. Yeah, and... Um Given what happened in Atlanta, that the shootings occurred at massage businesses, we've seen an increase in policing of massage businesses here in New York. Like police were deployed to flushing and it directly led to a lot of raids on the massage businesses in flushing. And that is also violence in the community. So let's talk a little bit about the the big picture here. Um, aside from, because as we know, um, hate crime is sort of um, a difficult label, right? There are a lot of reasons why hate crimes occur. Um, there are a lot of different schools of thought about whether it's an appropriate label, and we'll dig into that a little bit later in our in our conversation today. But if you could talk to me a little bit about what sets the stage for these outbursts of violence that we've seen recently? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, we can trace it all the way back, but I think even just looking for the past few years under the Trump administration, I mean, Trump did a really good job of equating COVID-19 to China. Um, and, you know, COVID was seen as this foreign threat. In essence, people... Asian people were seen as a foreign threat. And we were, um, I think, and not only that, there's like just the broader, you know, U.S. empire escalating tension rhetorically and, I mean, and economically with the Asian um, continent. Um, and so we're looking at just 
which and all of this stems from white supremacy, right? So at the end of the day, U.S. empire functioning as it is, um, scapegoating China for um, its own incompetence, and you know, COVID. It's I mean, it's been past a year, and it's been really economically devastating, right? And not only that, but this past year, you know, during the pandemic, we see like you know um, protests on the street. Um, because of police brutality, we see um, the revolts by white supremacists after these, you know, protests. And so at the end of the day, all of this kind of gets distilled to um, economic anxiety, white supremacy, um, and the real material devastation of COVID and that sort of distilling into general interpersonal violence against Asian American um um, elders and, you know, mostly like younger, um, I'm sorry, older and more vulnerable folks in our community. Eve, is there anything that you'd like to add to that? I mean, I think that each instance of violence, right, um, has different roots, right? When we talk about, which I've been talking about a lot lately, as you probably already know, when we talk about what happened in Atlanta, right? This is a very specific form of racialized and gendered violence. So it is anti-Asian violence, but it's also anti-Asian woman violence, anti migrant Asian women violence, like in a very specific way. And I think that that specificity is important whenever we talk about different instances of violence in the Asian, Asian American community, right? Um, different people are subjected to different and specific types of violence for like their livelihoods, for who they are, and for like multiple layered identities. Um, and there's just so much history rooted in that when you pick apart any particular like example, right? So there's so much history, which Lizzie like talks about partially when talking about American imperialism is that there's so much history of U.S. imperialism, like forming racialized gendered assumptions around Asian women and the violence that Asian women particularly and like Asian women who engage in sex work or related to sex work. It, um, face as well, right? So it's just a really large topic that covers a lot, and there's so much history that it's all rooted in. Mm. Absolutely, and um, you know, I think we we are we're in a moment where this topic is um, very much on the the top of people's minds, the top of people's news headlines. But it's been persistent before, and it will continue to be an issue even after the the mainstream media has moved on, as sad as that is to say. So um, we always like to look toward organizers and people who are from directly impacted communities for our guidance on um, what is to be done the way forward. So I'd love to put that question to you. Um, this episode that we're, we're talking about on Revolutions Per Minute tonight is all about defunding the police with the goal of eventually abolishing the police. So within that context and framework, what are your thoughts on um, solutions to this issue going forward? Well, I obviously am a pick abolitionist, the prison industrial complex. And with that being said, I obviously don't think that policing or prisons are the answer. Any form of incarceration is the answer, right? Specifically, when we look at what Red Canary Song, like, 
focuses on when we're talking about massage workers, when we're talking about sex workers, when we're talking about Asian migrant women, undocumented folks, policing has never been the answer. Policing is violence itself, right? I think that there's some specificity to be had about the conversation because the truth is, is that I think that some people in the Asian, Asian American community looks towards policing because they're not the most marginalized or vulnerable people in the community, right? They wouldn't necessarily be directly harmed by increased policing in the community. But the people who are harmed are massage workers, are undocumented migrant workers, are sex workers, right? Anybody who engages in any sort of criminalized work and is more vulnerable. And so we already know that in that case and who we're talking about, right? Policing isn't going to help. They're only going to make it worse. And we've already seen that. As mm -hmm. soon as they could, the NYPD deployed forces into the into flushing and it led to raids and it led to people being arrested, right? And we also saw so many Southeast Asian people deported recently. And that's also violence. That's also a form of state violence, right? So that's not going to solve any of the violence. But when we step away from talking about like violence that's done directly from the police, like ICE, PD, or anybody like that, right? The violence also stems from the state, right? White supremacist violence that Lizzie talks about, the history of U.S. imperialism, all of this violence is rooted in the violence of the state. There's no way that these actors would solve it, right? Even when it's like a white supremacist, a random white supremacist who causes violence or any person like that who causes violence in Asian, Asian American communities, the state also cannot solve that. And certainly police and prisons are not going to solve that because they don't actually solve issues. They just disappear people, right? You put people in jails, in prisons, in different carceral facilities, and you disappear them without actually dealing with the reasons why those types of violence occur, right? We're not dealing with white supremacy when we put people in prison. We're not dealing with imperialism when we put people in prison. You're not changing any of the conditions for why certain violence or harm occurs. Mm. And I would just add to that, I think, um, because policing stems directly from white supremacy, because the police, their main function in a capitalist society is to protect capital, right? Protect property. So yes, if you are a rich Asian, you are going to be less likely to be impacted by um, more policing. Um, but what we need because of the economic devastation, um, because of the fact, the sheer fact that one in four Asian American New Yorkers are under the poverty level, right? I mean, this is like everyday violence, right? The state has a very direct role in ensuring that not only our people are invisibilized, but that a certain segment of the Asian American population is not getting the material resources that they need to survive. And so I think, yes, policing is definitely not the answer. And instead of, you know, continuing to bloat the budgets of the NYPD, you know, which really just goes into donuts and mortgages in the suburbs, we should take that money. We should defund the NYPD and spend that on people, invest in people who really need it right now, right? Like stop funding corporate developers, stop funding um, financial capitalists, fund the people. Yes, Right. Uh, thank you so much, Lizzie and Eve, for your work and for being here with us. Any final uh, thoughts for our audience? 
I mean, I hope that people in New York become mobilized from this, that they join an org, that they support people in their community, right? We certainly need it, um, could use all the support. I know that's in the news and everybody's talking about it, so it seems like things are being done. But like you already said, this is going to continue past this moment and the work needs to continue too. Thank you. Solidarity and um, best to you both. So we're coming to the end of our show with 15 minutes left, but I do want to take a few more questions about defunding the NYPD. Uh, please give us a call at 212-209-2877. Again, that number is 212-209-2877. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. Today, we're talking with Cheryl about NYCDSA's campaign to defund the NYPD. Call us with your questions. Um, so since we don't have any questions yet, uh, Cheryl, give me some feedback on what we just heard uh, from our comrades about AAPI violence and how that ties to the defund NYPD campaign. Yeah, um, you know, they were spitting hot fire. That was extremely correct. Uh, no notes, you know, <laughs> I think uh, I think I'm in agreement. And I, I think Something I want people to take away from this this past year in general, we see this rise in anti-Asian um, crimes or you know, violence. We see uh, a huge movement in the streets um, for Black lives. Um, we saw lots of organizing happening around mutual aid for what people need in this pandemic. We've seen tons of housing fights happening. And I, I really hope people take away an understanding um, that we we have to we have to join together, join an org, join a group, get some friends, um, be organized together. Start where you are uh, in your community, uh, reach out to others, and the, the things get done when we do them together. Uh, I, I think is is really the base of my politic and the base of, I think, what makes abolition work, because abolition is about not just tearing down police and prisons, but also building up uh, the world and the structures and, by necessity, the community, the sort of interactions, the sort of social interactions we want to have with people. Um, so it has to be done with other people. So I hope what people take away from this is that you got to join an org, you got to get a group, you got to do it together. Uh, and through that, all change is possible. That's really, that's really what I'm hoping, hoping people take and away from this. And about bringing other people on, um, what are some of your strategies for talking to people about this, about defunding the NYPD? What's worked for you? You know, I've noticed that most people don't like the cops. Most, many people don't. Uh, so most people's fear or reluctance to engage with defund is not around liking cops necessarily. A lot of people will say stuff like, oh, but don't they serve a necessary function? And I think that's an easy conversation to have about the history of policing as tied to slavery and what function they really serve. Um, but I think the harder thing for people is 
They think that defund will just be another thing that was tried and failed or that it, it's not, you know, they see it as a, a reform. And so to that, I, I really try to explain the purpose of defund. We don't say defund the police, like the police budget, you take the money out, but it's okay to have school safety officers. Um, defund is really, you gotta be militant. When you are cutting these police budgets, you're cutting not only just the police the NYPD budget, you're also ensuring that this money does not go into policing by other names. Uh, so we, we don't want, we do want mental health responses that are not carceral, um, so that don't involve calling the police on people. But we also wanna make sure our money is not going towards um, other responses that are essentially just policed by other names and <laughs> empowering social workers to be cops to, to then have the power to put people in prison. So that's really important. And I think it's super important to emphasize that with people because you're really saying, let's build a whole new world. You need to imbue people with some hope for something different because you, you, you're saying we're not doing the same things over and over. So you got to make sure that when we're defunding, we're, we're clear about this. We're not going to uh, just move things around and the money still essentially uh, producing the same results. Uh, we want to very radically change the way that we uh, interact as a society, the things we put our money towards, build new structures. And that is an optimistic project. So when you talk to people about this, it can't all just be, oh, the cops are so bad, right? We agree they're bad. Okay, now we're like depressed. We're talking about like how terrible the cops are and how many people they lock up. Ugh, it feels overwhelming. We've also got to be like, and what could we have? Like, let's envision, let's, let's do some vision exercises. Let's do some hope, you know, like, let's think about how do you want to live in this world? I ask people, what, what life do you want to have? What world do you want to live in? What does your city look like? And that, I think, to get people talking about that and saying that that is possible. These things are made possible. We defund the police and we invest in our communities. And that invest in our communities part is so potentially broad and it can be what we want it to be. We are in control of, of that vision of our city. We live in the city. We should have power over making it be the way we want it to be, correct? I think that's what gets people on board. We're like, why should I be a socialist? Why should I be an abolitionist? Because that's power to build the, the city you want to live in, to build the life you want for yourself and for your neighbors and for your family. I think that's really invigorating for people. Yeah, and the DSA catchphrase is a better world is possible. Um, and like, it's so hard to cling on to that when we're in the middle of the worst pandemic in 100 years. And yeah people are starving and suffering and it's like you know how can a better world be possible everything is so hard right now uh, but it is because a hundred thousand dollars has fed people and all of these people uh, the responses we got from people who are receiving you know some of these funds and saying okay so what can I do also that that's happening so that better world's possible going and sitting you know addiction defense for someone and the community that you fill there it's been hard times this past year, but there's also been real moments where I felt surer than ever that we can win. It's absolutely possible. Exactly. Um, and if someone wants to win with you by getting involved with the defund NYPD campaign, 
How can they join you? Yes, uh, we have a website, defundnypd.com. If you go there, we have a calendar of public events. Um, you can just show up at one of these events. And from there, it's just as easy as, what are the things that you're interested in doing within this campaign? Are you a person who wants to do political education? Are you an educator? Are you uh, someone in the streets? Um, do you want to learn how to table and talk to people? There's all sorts of ways to be involved in this campaign. Um, so go to defundnypd.com, uh, come to one of our events, and it's a friendly group. You say, hey, I want to be involved. You're on the mailing list, show up. Uh, get plugged into the work. We're waiting for you. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Again, Cheryl, you're our star. We're so glad to have you organizing with us in New York City DSA. Thank you, Desiree. Love coming on Revolutions Per Minute. Always a fun time. To close out the show, I'm going to read the last paragraph of the Defund NYPD Manifesto. It's called Our City Demands It, Defund the NYPD. New Yorkers need our teachers and our counselors, our nurses and emergency medical workers, our housing lawyers, homeless outreach workers, and countless others to ensure our safety and well-being. We are safe when we have affordable housing and policies that safeguard us against eviction. We are safe when our jobs and livelihoods are no longer considered nice-to-haves in an immoral municipal budget. We are safe when all of our children have access to quality public education with practices that mitigate the spread of COVID-19 amongst our loved ones. We are safe when our community health programs are strengthened with non-police mental health and drug crisis responses and adequately funded hospitals. We keep us safe. You've been listening to Revolution Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. To connect with us after the show, you can email us at revolutionsnyc at gmail.com. You can find us on our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com or on Twitter at NYCRPM. Happy International Transgender Day of Visibility.